we're in the middle of this series. This is number four. Um, the first one, what, what, what makes a healthy church? The first one was the priority of preaching uh, God's word. Uh, the second one was th- we were thinking about having a biblical concept of God. And that relates to preaching in a way. We're not just to make up the God that we would like him to be, but hear what he says about himself. Uh, Last week we were thinking about uh, the gospel, the good news, the message of Christianity. What is it and what difference does it make in our lives? Uh, And today we're going to think about number four. What, What do you say when you meet someone and they say, maybe they've got a past, I don't know, and they say, please believe me, I've changed. I've changed. My, my wife has heard me say that a few times, I suppose, in 20-odd years of marriage. Um, I'm sorry, I'll try to change. And sometimes she might look at me with, we've been here before, and uh, I, I, will you really? And uh, sometimes we meet people, don't they, and they'll say, I've changed. I think in, inside, sometimes when we hear that, we might be thinking inside, pull the other one. I, I think most of us, if we're honest, are quite sceptical about whether people really can change. Politicians, will they ever really change? Uh, Preachers, maybe people are cynical about. Uh, Celebrities, Uh, the truth is, it's hard to see how anyone can really change who they are. In our culture, um, it's almost seen as a sign of maturity if you can reach the place where you can accept yourself as you really are. That's true, isn't it? The die is cast. You are what you are. The leopard can't change his spots any more than you can change who you fundamentally are. No anxious person can fully change. No insecure person can really no change. It is just the way it is. I think, sadly, this idea is not uncommon among Christian people who do believe, at least in theory, that change is possible. I feel that I meet more Christians, possibly, than I should, who seem to me, anyway, to have given up on the possibility of change. And so I might hear comments like, I can't help it, or it's too hard, or you don't know how bad my situation is, or something like that. I'm not wanting to make light of the difficulties and struggles that we have in our lives, but I'm just questioning the assumption, the underlying assumption, that change is not possible. I think there's another angle to this as well, culturally. The other side of this is that our culture regards any suggestion that change is necessary with great suspicion, doesn't it? If someone is telling you that you ought to change, how very dare they? That's culturally unacceptable, isn't it? And we view that culturally with great suspicion. They must be trying to control you. They must be trying to make you like them. And what you really should do when you come across people who are trying to tell you to change is just don't listen to them. Just be yourself and don't let anyone manipulate you Don't let anyone tell you what to do or how to be. Does that ring bells with you? Yet, for all the cynicism and scepticism, 
we do seem to have in our hearts a deep longing to change don't we we're often restless and not content I, I think you can see this in the way that we're always trying to rearrange things in our lives do you get that let's move the furniture around let's paint the lounge let's uh, buy some new clothes maybe things have, if, if things are really bad let's let's move house and make a new start altogether what about a new job or different hours? For some people, other boundaries are crossed, aren't they? What about a new partner altogether? Sometimes there's a nagging sense in life, isn't there? If I could just sort this particular issue out, then I'll be complete. Then I'll have arrived. Then I'll have really found what I'm looking for. And it always just seems out of grasp doesn't it and all of these different choices are very fraught and still we find ourselves often restless and uh, hopeless well what, what does the Bible say about change and I'm not just talking about painting the lounge obviously the Bible doesn't say a great deal about that but what does the Bible say about real deep lasting personal change Christians always seem to be talking about lives being changed. They, they talk about being saved or being converted. Christians talk about being born again or about becoming a Christian, coming to faith. Is this kind of talk just uh, deluded talk, thinking that change is happening? Or is there something in this kind of talk well, we're, we're talking here, really, aren't we, about the most radical and greatest and deepest of all change. And it is what theologians call conversion. What does it mean to experience conversion? So in the middle of our little series, we're, we're here. What makes healthy church? I, I suppose number four is... A biblical understanding of conversion. I wish I had a better title than that, but it does say what it is. It says what it, it does what it says in the tin. A biblical understanding of conversion. And I want to exploit with you under uh, some different headings here. So first of all, let me ask you a question. Uh, first of all, is change needed? It's a good question, isn't it? Many people, as we've seen, might answer that culturally. No, immediately, I'm okay. Leave me alone getting on just fine what's more if you're suggesting I need to change to your way of seeing things what makes you think that your way is better than my way are you some sort of guru or some sort of smug hypocrite leave me alone you worry about you I'll worry about me that kind of language or at least a thought is common isn't it in our culture our problem is that the Bible clearly teaches that we do, as human beings, need major change. And in fact, the Bible teaches us that we're not just okay, but in actual fact, from God's perspective, we are, we're, we're in deep trouble. And there are many places in the Bible that describe uh, this idea. Uh, Lisa read to us from Ephesians chapter 2. This um, letter is written by Paul to Christians in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. 
And uh, it, it, we're not going to kind of go through these verses, but it might be useful for you to have your finger on the page there. Um, he, he's not particularly complimentary about them. Uh, the, the, the first verse that Lisa read to us, he, he's speaking to Christian believers about what they were like before they were converted. And he says to them, as for you, you were dead. That's great, isn't it? <laughs> as for you, you were dead. What, what an encouraging letter. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. And he includes uh, himself in this, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. But he says in verse 3, all of us also lived uh, among them like this at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following his desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we, includes himself, were by nature objects of wrath. You were dead. One of the, one of the great things of the, in the Bible is the little word but. So many times in the Bible we see this word but. This is what it was like. But look at verse 4. There's a glorious but there. But, this is what it was like. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. That sounds to me like a great change. You were dead and God has come to you and made you alive. What a great but that is. Elsewhere, Paul writes of this idea of uh, humanity sharing in, in a kind of spiritual death. Uh, in Romans chapter 3, Paul is seeking to establish the moral bankruptcy of human nature in God's eyes and the utter futility of thinking that we can somehow make ourselves righteous in God's eyes. When you read the Bible as it comments on human nature, it does use very radical and powerful images that maybe contrast with the way we like to think about ourselves. It's uh, well, our plight. Let, let me show you some uh, images. Of, we've talked about our plight being compared to death. Uh, another image in, in the Bible is that human beings are described as being in slavery. We've been thinking about that in our growth group on a Thursday night. Uh, Jesus said, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Uh, there's a slavery, an inability to set ourselves free. The Bible uses the metaphor of being sick. Jesus said, I haven't come to call people who are well. I've, I've come to call people who are sick. And uh, if you think you're well, I suppose Jesus really doesn't have anything relevant to say. He was speaking to the Pharisees, of course, who thought they were they thought they were healthy. The Bible describes human nature as, uh, as sick. What about uh, the idea of being in debt? We hear a lot about that in our modern culture, don't we, financially? But uh, the Bible describes our spiritual condition as being in debt. Jesus talked about, um, talked about a man, didn't he, who uh, he owed like, I don't know, a million pounds. And, uh, and he went to his, uh, the person who he owed the million pounds to and he cast himself on the floor. He said, oh, mercy on me, please. Uh, I, I can't pay and, and I've got a family. And, and the man, very gracious, he said to him, uh, I'll write this debt off. And then he went out and someone came to him and said, you owe me a fiver. 
And the mum wanted to punch his lights out because he owed him a fiver. And it's a picture, isn't it, of forgiveness and the idea that we're indebted uh, to God and that we need, a, uh, we need forgiving. We need our debts paying. And the idea of being morally bankrupt we've touched on. We have no goodness in a way to bring to God. The pockets are empty. And uh, in God's eyes, our plight is very desperate. I, I think one of the things that happens when God begins to stir a person's heart is that they begin to become aware of their great need. They begin to sense something serious about their own life in relation to God. It's maybe all of the reasons and excuses are stripped away and it just becomes you and God. And and the realisation begins to dawn that all is not well between you and him. In the Gospels, there's the amazing story of Peter, one of the disciples. He was always there speaking before he thought. But there's one occasion he was so overcome with the things that Jesus was doing that he, he falls on his knees and cries out, Lord, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says to him, don't be afraid. And that, that sense of when we come near to God, the sense that we want him to go away because we realise that things are not right. In the Old Testament, the great King David, who fought Goliath, experienced something of this, and he wrote a psalm. And he says this. He'd done some terrible things. But but he, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge I think our problem my problem is that often we compare ourselves with others don't we it's it's a form of denial isn't it and uh, the thing is that you can always find someone who's worse than you can't you if you look hard enough we blame our environment we blame other people even at the beginning you know the old joke about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden God spoke to Adam and he blamed Eve. God spoke to Eve and she blamed the serpent. God spoke to the serpent he didn't have a leg to stand on. You heard the old gag. The issue really is not what others think or even in one sense what we think. Our greatest issue really is what God thinks, isn't it? I'm always losing things in my garage. Some of you know that. Sometimes the garage is open and some of you drive past and you look in there and think, what a... What a mess. And uh, often things get piled up in there. Camping gear, sledges, bikes, garden stuff, old stuff that we don't want to throw out, but we can't keep it in the house, so we put it in the garage, deceiving ourselves that one day we'll do something with it. And then I need to find some important tool. And uh, I know it's in there somewhere. It's invariably in the evening when it's pitch black dark, and I have to get my torch and shine my light into my garage. And I just look out there and I just see chaos. And I wonder if God were to come and shine his light into the garage of our lives 
my life, what would he find? Is change needed? Well, I, I think, according to the Bible, it is desperately needed. Uh, we're, we're in a serious condition. My second question is this, is change really possible? We might agree on one level that change is needed, but is it possible? Now, we, we often think, don't we, that a little reorganisation is a good thing. But deep and lasting change, I, I'm not sure about that. Maybe sometimes we might have tried to address things in our lives and we've been maybe disappointed and we don't want to raise our hopes uh, too much. I think also the, the, the age that we live in is important in this regard. We, we do live in a secular age and uh, there are benefits to that and there's some great um, things that have happened uh, in history. But what, what I mean by that word secular is that this, we, we live in a time when the underlying cultural assumption is that this is a closed system. There, there is no supernatural intervention in this world. If people think that God is doing something, there's always a natural explanation for that. This is the era of science, technology. It is a very secular world. And we have to live our lives in this system. And our resources are limited to what we can touch and feel and see. And uh, we can find no evidence in this world that change is possible. But if you think that help can come from outside of this world, well, you, you're going to be on a par with uh, people who believe in UFOs and people who introduce you to their imaginary friends at parties. Um, is real change possible? Or is it just a pipe dream? Well, according to the Bible, not only is change absolutely vital, but it is absolutely possible too. The Bible teaches that God made us and that every one of us has the capacity to know him and love him and serve him. It teaches us that in our natural condition, we are moving away from him. But the Bible teaches that this can be put right and that we can change and return to him. And isn't this the most amazing reality? The good news of the Christian gospel is not pull your socks up, but it is that God can give you a fresh start, a new life, a new beginning, the possibility of real, deep, lasting change. You were dead and God makes you alive. Isn't that the most incredible thing to hear? And we find this all over the Bible. It's stamped on almost every page. Sick people being made well. Bankrupt people having their debts paid off in full. Dead people being raised alive. Slaves being liberated and set free. Last year we were looking at Peter's first letter in the New Testament. And he starts his letter with these words. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope. 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never spoil or perish or fade. Is change needed? Yes. Is change possible? Absolutely. Okay, here's my third question. What change is needed? As we think about this, biblically, Oh, come in. What change is needed? Now, there are many philosophers and religious leaders who've given great thought to this question. Things do need to change, but what, needs, what, what change is needed? You could uh, think about uh, characters in history like Gandhi. One example Uh, Gandhi said that the crying need of human beings is self-realisation. What we need to discover is our true potential. The source of our problems is that we're confused about who we are and we need to take a step back and embark on a journey of self-discovery. The idea here is that any change must surely be about fulfilling our potential. Any change must reinforce us and strengthen us. And any thought that we might be wrong is dismissed. But of course the Bible teaches that this change, conversion, is not about discovering our inner potential. It is about turning around and facing in a completely different direction. The Bible speaks of this, and uh, maybe it's not a word our culture likes to hear, the Bible speaks of this as repentance. The Bible says that we must turn from ourselves to the true God. Mark Dever or Diva, I have to ask him, I have to email him and say, how do you pronounce your name? Mark Dever says this. We must resign our claim to be the final judges and governors of our own lives and acknowledge that this role belongs to God alone. Our past sins need forgiving. Our present lives need to be reorientated. And our future destiny needs to be changed from the hell of God's righteous judgment to the heaven of God's gracious forgiveness in Christ. This is the great change. It is not just a superficial adjustment. It is not just reorganising our lives to fit our own desires. It is reorganising our lives to fit God's ways. Someone has said the first step towards the one true God is acknowledging that we are not God, but that he is. And this is where we understand that apart from this change, our situation is really quite dire. We're guilty and heading away from God. And what we need is to be converted from worshipping ourselves to worshipping the living God. 
Here's another question then. What will this change involve? Is it mental acceptance? That's a good question, isn't it? Many people will teach that what's required is like a big version of a New Year's resolution. You make New Year's resolutions. They kind of finish on January the 2nd, don't they? Or maybe you're better than me and you can keep them for longer than that. Maybe you still keep them, I don't know. Does this involve some kind of decision? Or is it necessary to like sign a pledge or pray a prayer and then start getting involved in doing good churchy type things? Well, the Bible teaches that repentance is much more than mental agreement. It involves turning. Uh, let, me, let me say a couple of things about this. Um, I, I think there are two different dangers here and um, I agree with Mark Dever about this. The, the first is that there are some people who are truly converted Christian people but they think they're not. People like that do exist. They, they are truly Christian but they think they're not and as a result they're miserable and fed up and the problem is that they know the Bible well and they know the parts of the Bible that say that a Christian is someone who is not given over to sin and so when they do sin they feel that they can't be a Christian somehow In the Bible, one of the names, there are many different names given for the devil in the Bible, and one of the devil's names is the accuser. And I think that's a very powerful concept. If you're one of these people who is truly converted but think you're not, there's nothing worse than hearing a little voice inside that says, how can you call yourself a Christian when you have done that and thought that and said that? Some of you listen to that too much and forget the good that God has done in your heart sometimes you forget the good that other people can see that you can't see John Newton was a slave trader who became Christian he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace and I think a true Christian can say like he did these words I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I wish to be. I'm not even what I hope to be. Yet I can truly say, I'm not what I once was. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Maybe some of you feel miserable. And you've forgotten the good things that God has done in your heart and life. And some sense of failure makes you think, how can I be a Christian? Christians don't do that. But there's another side to this. There's another problem on the other side. And I think this is even more serious. There are people who think they are Christians when they're not. (laughs) That's the other side of the coin, isn't it? This is far more serious. 
There's been times in our country's history when, believe it or not, when going to church was quite popular. It was like a done thing. Get up on a Sunday, go to church. And in those times, there would be people who would know the Bible. They'd be able to speak the right kind of language and yet not know the power of God changing them. Superficial. Charles Spurgeon tells the story of walking down the street. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in the 1800s whose church in London was packed. Sometimes thousands of people hearing this man preach, you can still read his sermons. When he preached on a Sunday, they used to telegram his sermons to America on Monday morning to appear in the paper the next day in New York. Very famous preacher. Charles Spurgeon was walking down the street and a drunken man shouts out to him, Hey, Mr. Spurgeon, do you remember me? And Charles Spurgeon, in his way, he said, No, why would I? And Spurgeon replies to him, uh, he, he said, I'm one of your converts. And Spurgeon replies, what a great answer this is, you may well be one of mine, but you're not one of Christ's. That's a great quote, isn't it? You may well be one of my converts, but you're not one of Christ." Spurgeon despaired of people who claimed to be Christians, but there was no evidence in their lives of them being changed. Listen to these words. I've, I've changed uh, some of the language because he was speaking in the 1800s. So forgive me for paraphrasing some of this, but he, you'll still get some of the archaic language. Spurgeon said this, Beware, I pray you, of presuming you are saved. If with your heart you trust in Jesus, then you are saved. But if you merely say, I trust in Jesus, it does not save you. If your heart is renewed, if you hate the things you once loved and love the things you once hated, if you have really repented, if there is a thorough change of mind in you, if you be born again, then you have reason to rejoice. But if there be no vital change, no inward godliness, if there is no love to God, no prayer, no work of the Holy Spirit, then by saying I am saved, then saying I am saved is but your own assertion and it may delude you, but it will not deliver you. God preserve us from imaginary blessings. Powerful words. Mental acceptance. What about this one? Moral resolve on a similar line. Sometimes people might teach that Christianity is all about, I don't know, I'm going to really try and clean my life up and I'm going to start taking responsibility for being good and I'm going to stop messing around and I'm really going to be resolved. Is this what the Bible teaches when it talks about repentance? Well, I want to suggest to you all of this sounds plausible, but it isn't. It isn't enough. Let me, um, let me give you uh, this comment. And I, I haven't put a question mark on this one because this is the right answer. Okay, just in case you didn't get that. Relying on Jesus. The Bible teaches that the essence of this great change is wholeheartedly relying on Jesus. It's not a little change here and a little bit of effort there. It isn't reforming my life and trying harder as if these things will impress God and somehow, somehow justify me before him. The problem is our condition is much more serious than that. 
If we truly recognise that our morality is bankrupt and that we can't hide or cover sins by doing religious things or moral things, it will lead us to rely wholly on Jesus and not on our own feeble morality. The truth is, the truth is, you can't go to church enough. You can't attend growth group enough. You can't read the Bible enough. You can't teach in Sunday school enough. You can't help enough old people across the road. You can never be kind enough. You could never be happy enough. You can't be content enough or beautiful enough to merit, to deserve God's good will towards you. Our only hope does not lie in trying to cajole God into being nice to us, but to believe that he has done it all for us already, because that is what he is like. He has taken our human nature on himself in the person of his son, Jesus. He has lived the kind, content and beautiful life that we could never live. He died upon a Roman cross to absorb all of God's displeasure against our failure and sin and rose again in victory having paid all of our debt in full. And now he sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts and lives to give us his life. This great change is not about trying harder. It involves relying on Jesus completely and only. Not a little bit of me and some of him. It is all of him. He's done it all. That is the heart of the message of Christianity. Now, the big question then is, I, th- I think this might be my last question, but I've got some little subjects under it, so we're not quite finished yet, so stay with me. The big question now is, how then does this great change happen? Are you all on the edge of your seat? <laughs> How does this great change happen? If this is the great change we need, if this is the great change that's possible, how can this great change happen? Let me give you some options. The ones with question marks on are not the right answer. Okay, here's the first one. We do nothing. Some people will teach you, this gets taught in churches sometimes, that if God saves us, then we must just relax and just lie back in our hammocks and do Nothing. Some, in the 60s, I think, someone coined the phrase, let go and let God. What a great phrase that is. Just relax. It's all of God. You don't need to do anything. If you're inclined to being quite a lazy person, that sort of teaching might apply to you. That's great. I don't need to do anything. I'll just sit back, have some marshmallows, and let God do it all. Apparently... In the last century, there's a famous theologian called Karl Barth who met the preacher, Billy Graham. Have you heard of Billy Graham? And he told him that he really liked Billy Graham's preaching, except for one thing. 
Billy Graham kept urging people that, to, to be saved. And, he, and Karl Barr said to him, what you need to do, Billy, is stop telling people to be saved. What you need to tell them is that they're already saved. Well, that's not what Jesus taught. Jesus didn't go around saying, stop trying and relax and just realise that you're already saved, did he? Neither did he tell people to embark on a period of self-reflection to see if they could discern God's grace. What Jesus preached, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, I think it is. Jesus preached, repent and believe the good news. There is something to do. You need to turn from your sins, from yourself, and turn to God, and you'll be saved. Repent and believe the good news. So is Christianity just an act of the will? Here's another option. If we don't do nothing, maybe we should do everything. I've been asking this already, haven't I? Is becoming a Christian just making a decision? Is it an act of the will? If it is, we, we really should just be doing whatever we can to get people to make a decision for Jesus, shouldn't we? I mean, it wouldn't be wrong, surely, to use a bit of manipulation even, would it? When people's eternal destiny is at stake, if we can just get people to make a decision. Is the gospel just presenting the right information to people so persuasively that they will come to the right conclusion and make the right decision well I don't think it is because the assumption behind that is that we are inherently good and that somehow if someone can just tell us the truth we would find it within ourselves to respond appropriately to this great message of good news but in the end that is still self salvation isn't it it really depends on me mustering up the goodness to make the right decision. But we've seen that our condition is much worse than that. Do you know, every religion in the world will teach you that in the end, it's up to you. Except the Bible. Because the Bible pulls the rug from under our feet and doesn't assume that we are inherently good. And it's hard for us this, isn't it? I don't want to be depressing and miserable, but unless we understand that we can't save ourselves, we will never turn and believe in Jesus. So here, here is my um, last point. Actually, there might be a subpoint under this one as well. We'll see. God works this saving faith in us. The Bible says that we need this great radical change. We need to be converted. We were dead. We need to be alive. But the Bible teaches at the same time that this great change cannot happen unless God first changes our heart. I don't understand the mystery of that. We have the ability to love God, but by nature we would never choose to do it. And so God needs to give us a new heart. Let me show you some verses 
rather than changing some, I'm going to put them on the screen here. Uh, first of all, here, here's a verse from a prophet in the Old Testament, Ezekiel. This is God speaking. And he, God says, I will give them an undivided heart and I will put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Later on, in a similar vein, that's Ezekiel chapter 11. Chapter 36. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. In the New Testament, here's a verse from a letter Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. And we can see this in the, this idea in the words of Jesus as well. We were thinking about this in our growth group. John chapter 6 verse 44 Jesus said to the crowds that were following him no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them. We have also the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 very religious man you remember Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and he says some nice things to Jesus and then Jesus completely flummoxes him by saying, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. Nicodemus goes, how can I enter my mother's womb and be born again? <laughs> he doesn't get it at all. What Jesus is saying to him is, you don't need a mended heart. What you need is a completely new heart. You need to be born again. Jesus didn't tell him to clean up his life. He told him that he needed a completely new one. So Jesus teaches that we must turn and believe, but that we can only do these things when behind our act is God's prior act. I think it's true in the Bible, this, this is my little sub-point here, that this generally happens in the Bible through hearing the word of God. This, this is why church is so important. This is why reading the Bible is so important. In Peter, in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, said to the Christians there, you have been born again through the living and enduring word of God. Paul writes in a similar vein to the church in Rome, faith comes through hearing the message. And the message is the word of Christ. Let me give you um, a practical illustration of this. In the, in the book of Acts, the story of the early church, there's a centurion called Cornelius, a Roman centurion, presumably a tough guy. And um, God, God is powerful. And I, I think, you know, when we read the Bible, it, we, we might have the idea that God could 
go to Cornelius and zap him and make him a Christian. But what actually happens? In Acts chapter 10, God finds someone who knows God's word and tells him to go to Cornelius. Quite a journey. He also appears to Cornelius in a vision and tells him to send for this man. So both sides have worked out by God. I don't, God could have appeared to him in a vision and made him a Christian there. But he appears in a vision and says, I want you to send for this man. Peter, in fact. And instead of God just making him a Christian there and then, this long process of sending for Peter, and Peter journeying and staying overnight, coming to the house. And then do you know what happened? Peter then begins to describe to him the good news about Jesus. You can read about it in Acts chapter 10. And this is what it says. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. As they heard the good news of the message, the Spirit worked in their heart and faith was born. It didn't happen to them in a vacuum. It didn't happen while they were transcendentally meditating. As they heard the message, the Spirit gave birth to faith in their heart. They were converted as they heard the message and believed. What about Lydia? You know the story of Lydia. She was a businesswoman in the book of Acts. She responded to the gospel as Paul preached in the uh, Roman colony, Philippi. But you know what the Bible says. Acts chapter 16, verse 14. It says, The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. This is why when we pray for people, we pray that God would be at work in their hearts. That he would open their eyes. That he would give them new life. Well, as we close, why is this important as one of the things that makes a healthy church? Well, if, if Christian conversion is basically something that is up to us, then we, we've not fully understood our human nature. Christian conversion definitely involves a sincere and serious commitment turning from ourselves and to God. But at the same time, it is also God giving us a new heart, a new life, a new mind. Churches are not simply groups of people who are all on a journey towards God, some finding him, some still seeking him. The truth is that none of us would seek him unless he first sought us. We are either in great need of this change or we've experienced it. I don't want us to be a church that is filled with people who think that they're not Christians when they are or who think they are Christians when they're not. This great change is so deep and so radical that we can't do it superficially ourselves. We need God to work it in us. If you're not a Christian, I want you to understand that you need to be converted. And I want to urge you, as Jesus would urge you, to repent and to turn from yourself to Jesus in faith. And to do it now. Not tomorrow, or next week, or next year. It isn't about knowing all the answers. 
But it is about turning to him and relying upon him and his death for us. Do it now. If you are a Christian, I want to remind you what an amazing thing has happened to you. Your life has changed. It says in the New Testament, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. We've seen that change is needed, but it is gloriously possible. This change is to move from living lives of sin and guilt to living forgiven lives that please God. Many people have experienced this great change. We spoke about John Newton, slave trader. You could go all the way through history, all the great uh, heroes, Augustine, Luther, John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, Charles Spurgeon, we talked about. This is also true for some of you. You have heard God's call and you've responded to him in repentance and faith. So much for the idea that human beings cannot change. They can, by God's grace, be saved, converted, born again. Actually, we're all changing in one sense. When I look at photographs of me from 20 years ago, I I know that. I've got more grey hairs now than I had then. Maybe that's church ministry for you, I don't know. We are changing. Life goes on. And do you know, as life goes on, some of you younger ones won't know this, but there used to be cameras called Polaroids. And you'd take a picture, and the picture would come out the front of the camera. Have you ever seen seen that? And then you hold the thing in your hand, and the picture slowly comes into focus. Amazing technology. Polaroid, what were they called? Instamatics or something. Big chunky thing, and the picture comes off. When you think about your life, your life is changing anyway. And what is happening is that as your life comes into focus, what is really being relieved, revealed, relieved, revealed, is that we are becoming the image of the things that we truly love. Your life is gradually changing and the truth of what you really love will out in the end. And as your life takes focus, will it show that you are gradually being changed into the glorious image of God? Or will it show that you're gradually being changed into some other lesser thing? To change in this way may seem utterly impossible. But the great news of the Bible is that it's not impossible for God. He promises it and he can do it. And all of us need to listen to the words of Jesus and repent and believe this great and good news.